Today on the show, I've brought in my colleague Catherine to be a co-host because we're going to be talking about women's sexual health and pain, a subject for which I am not the most qualified person at the CPA. I'm Eric Bowman, the Communications Specialist at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. There's a condition that affects between 8 and 38% of all women, and it's entirely likely you've never heard of it. One of the reasons we're doing this podcast episode today is to hopefully help in getting more people aware of vulvodynia. One of the foremost experts on the condition is a psychologist right here in Canada. My name is Caroline Pucal. I'm a professor of psychology at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I'm also the director of the Sex and Relationship Therapy Service at the Queen's Psychology Clinic. And I have been working in the area of vulvodynia and related conditions uh, for more than 25 years right now, ever since I was a graduate student. That's a good long time. And I have brought in a guest host today because I feel like vulvodynia is something for which I have very little frame of reference. And uh, I think Catherine would have a better frame of reference. Hi, I'm Catherine McLaren. I'm the Membership and Association Development Lead for the CPA. I here today in my capacity as person with a vagina. (laughs) Yes. So, First off, can you explain to us what vulvodynia is and maybe also why I have never heard of it before now? Well, I'm disappointed that you haven't heard about it, um, simply because we have been trying over the past like 20 plus years to really get this, um, get, get information about vulvodynia out there, not only to healthcare providers, but also to members of the public, um, just to increase awareness, uh, because a lot of people with vulvodynia really feel that Um, They're not well understood. People don't really believe their pain. There's a lot of stigma associated with having pain, especially in the genital area and especially during sexual activities. It really intersects upon multiple uncomfortable sort of topics of conversation. Um, So vulvodynia is essentially chronic vulvar pain. So the vulva is a part of the uh, external genitals and people who are assigned female sex at birth um, and covers sort of everything kind of on the outside and a little bit of the sort of vaginal entrance as well. So we're not talking about a deep chronic abdominal pain or pelvic pain or bladder pain when we're talking about vulvodynia. We are talking about pain that is restricted to the external part Um, the vulva, and that is sort of not able to be explained by uh, a quick medical examination. So definitely people can have vulvar pain due to an infection. They can have vulvar pain due to all sorts of conditions. But the term vulvodynia is restricted for those who have pain in the vulva that is not really easily explained by sort of infections and neoplastic conditions and dermatological conditions. Um, And there are different types of vulvodynia. Um, Some vulvodynia sort of... um, sort of affects different certain parts of the vulva. So one really common, like one common form of vulvodynia is called uh, vestibulodynia. So the vestibule is part of the vaginal entrance. Um, 
And that is when people, uh, and the pain here is usually provoked. So we will call it provoked vestibulodynia, which is where when there is pressure or contact to the area around the vaginal opening, that person will have pain. When there is no contact, usually that person does not have pain. But there are other forms of, of vulvodynia where the pain is constant. It is not related to any kind of sort of provoking stimulus. Um, and usually that will kind of cover sort of the entire vulvar area. So all the way from the bonds area, all the way down to around the anal opening. Um, you can have hemivulvodynia, so it could affect half of the vulvodynia, uh, half of the vulva, and then essentially like it could be provoked, it could be constant, you know, it could be a mix of the two. So they're like, it's sort of this overarching umbrella term for any kind of medically unexplained pain that will happen in the vulva. So what I'm, what I'm reading is that some of the causes for this are things like anxiety, depression, PTSD. Is that why you, as a psychologist, are one of the experts in vulvodynia uh, and we're not hearing as much from medical doctors uh, as maybe we should be about this, uh, considering that they're the ones who would be diagnosing it? Right. Well, it's interesting. Um, absolutely, there are some risk factors in terms of sort of a history of anxiety and depression that can sort of propel people who are vulnerable in certain ways towards getting, um, you know, towards having the condition of vulvodynia or other related conditions, right? And so uh, we look at it in terms of, as opposed to kind of like being caused by psychological factors, we see psychological and physical and genetic factors as risk factors for the development of vulvodynia. Um, and, you know, people with certain kind of specific combinations of these vulnerability factors are more likely to develop vulvodynia later on. Um, and with any chronic pain condition, we will see elevated depressive scores, we will see elevated anxiety, we'll see a lot of issues in terms of um, functional interference in terms of day to day activities, especially with those more constant pain uh, presentations of vulvodynia, so more of the unprovoked. Um, and we'll see, you know, sort of fallout in terms of relationships and sexuality as well. Um, and so I think part of the reason that it hasn't really, um, psychologists do pay attention to this, uh, but typically you're right, it is the medical doctor who, you know, they are the ones seeing these, these individuals who have vulvodynia because you know, it's kind of a gynecological issue, pain in the vulva, people think, yeah, I got to go see my gynecologist, or my urologist, and um, we need to figure this out. So um, medical professionals do know about this, psychologists do know about this. Um, but typically what happens is that if people do not know about it, they don't know how to properly refer or to treat this condition. And so what may happen is that because there doesn't seem to be anything physically wrong, you know, with the vulva and this person with this pain condition, what will typically happen is that the medical sort of healthcare provider will refer the patient on to a psychiatrist or a psychologist because you know they have decided that there is nothing physically wrong. So something perhaps may be psychologically wrong or there's nothing they have in their repertoire to, to treat this pain. Um, and so they want to send them over to someone who is really well-versed in terms of pain psychology and in terms of, sexuality and relationships. 
Um, and so, you know, people, there certainly are massive experts in terms of the health field um, out there. And um, we absolutely kind of refer all to each other, but there are still lots of people who've never heard about this and lots of psychologists who want to help as well, but just don't have the skills. You know, you know, maybe they haven't been trained in pain. Maybe they're not comfortable in terms of talking about sexual activity and they, they don't have the, they just don't have the competency. They don't have the skills or the knowledge to be able to handle sort of a case of vulvodynia in their practice. So it, it's because people aren't just getting properly educated about this. And we can go back to the training um, in medical school. We can go back to the training in clinical psychology programs. We can even go further than that. We can talk about the fact that talking about sexuality in general is a really uncomfortable topic for so many people. Think about all the controversies about sexual health education in schools. Right. Think about the mixed messages people are getting. Think about the fact that we're not really seeing representations of vulvodynia in the media, right? We are not seeing very much of this. So it, it's sort of it sort of has this limited percolation because of all of these sort of roadblocks along the way, um, you know, in terms of society's discomfort with talking about sexuality and pain. Um, you know, right. usually if people have, you know, pain during sexual activity, it's usually during penetration. Like how many people have really heard about that, you know? Um, and then it kind of just trickles into all of the training programs for our healthcare providers. So it really is um, sort of barrier after barrier after barrier. Um, so, you know, I'm not surprised people haven't heard about this, um, you know, but I, I still am disappointed because <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it is uh, part of my day to day. I have been working in this area and talking Valdivinia for more than 20 years, right? And so I would have hoped that it would have percolated more into sort of just out there as opposed to just all of us sexual medicine experts just you know getting better and better at this um, but there are great organizations there's the national Valvadinia organization that's located in the u.s it's a nonprofit, and you can find uh information for everybody you know at uh, it's www.nva.org and so it um, that is a that is like one of the first places I send people, and there are certainly you know specialist clinics across North America, um, where you have an integrated team of people who are able to help with this with this very frustrating and long term condition. And that I think if I mean we are talking about a lot of medical professionals and psychologists who aren't equipped to deal with it, who haven't heard of it. But the rate at which it affects women makes it amazing to me. I think, Catherine, when we mentioned this earlier, you hadn't heard of this either, right? Uh, and the fact that women haven't heard about it just uh, in general is, is kind of an amazing thing as well. Yeah, I um, I hadn't heard of it at all. Um, there's a there's a young woman in the States who works for BuzzFeed who started like a really great conversation about um, vaginismus. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yeah. Um, but that and, and the openness with which she shared her story and the platform that she used, BuzzFeed, which is so accessible, um, started a conversation amongst like women online and women in my friend groups and like really opened up just talking about vaginas with, with women and other people who have vaginas um, opened up a conversation in a way that I've just never seen it before. We were, and I mean, I'm a 32 year old woman. We should be able to talk about that part of our body very freely. Um, but 
it really is still private and pain in 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 our vulvas our vaginas is associated with so much shame still that it is hard to talk to and um you really do have to have a medical professional that you can trust to speak openly about about pain in your vagina and and a medical professional that you can trust not to shame you for having that conversation Yes, I, you know, so many patients I've, I've been in touch with, they've been invalidated, they've been dismissed, you know, some people have been told, hey, just have a glass of wine, you know, um, and it'll all go away. And I think to myself, wow, those are not very fruitful or very helpful conversations to have. Sometimes the best thing is to say, I don't know what this is, but I will refer you to someone who will likely know what this is, um, you know, and to do your due diligence, check for those infections, check for, you know, the conditions, get some support. Usually this is with um, high amounts of distress, high amounts of sexual dysfunction, uh, high amounts of feeling isolated, right? So get those patients connected in some way. Um, and, you know, there's another, so, med you know, so medicine can certainly help in terms of treatment, psychology can absolutely help, but obviously we're not talking about just general practitioners and we're not just talking about general psychologists. They need to have specific competencies, but there's also a class of healthcare providers that are helping immensely and have been, you know, their treatment has been empirically validated. It's pelvic floor physical therapists who have been trained, again, who have been trained as physiotherapists and go back and do training in the pelvic floor and have done training with pain, you know, in the pelvic and, and vulvar areas. And they are also a huge part of our um, interdisciplinary approach to uh, treating people with vulvodynia. Um, there are also there's also a bodies bodies podcast and tight lipped as well um, that cover you know sort of all different kinds of pain in the pelvic and the genital areas and talk about conditions like vaginismus which is difficulty with penetration of the vagina right whether that be with you know internal pelvic exams whether that be during sexual situations whether it be with all situations um, related to internal menstrual devices and things like that so you know we need to get this conversation started um, even more you know than than we have and we need to start doing more and more of these um, outreach, you know, in terms of BuzzFeed, in terms of podcasts, in terms of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Twitter, Instagram, like just really getting it out there so that we're able to. But at the same time, we also need a shift in terms of education, um, both at, you know, sort of primary, secondary school levels, as well as medical curricula, um, clinical psychology, um, et cetera. And it's hard to find someone who knows about pain and about sexuality. Like sometimes you know about sexuality, right? In terms of your practice, but you don't know very much about pain or you work in pain and you don't really know that much about sexuality. And it's interesting how, you know, you, you have to seek all of this additional training to sort of have this competency to deal, uh, you know, with, uh, with sort of the issues that are being brought to you in a, in a competent way, or at least have another referral source that you could, that you could refer to. And you mentioned a multidisciplinary approach to treating this. Can you give me an example of what that might look like 
Uh, you've got a physiotherapist who's now trained in, uh, I think you said pelvic floor exercises, uh, and obviously a psychologist is involved as well. So typically there will be a medical doctor, typically a gynecologist who is part of that team as well, because as, you know, as a psychologist and, you know, pelvic floor physiotherapist, we are not allowed, we, we don't know what we're doing in terms of ruling out common causes of vulvar pain. So we need to make sure that we, we know that if there is an infection causing that pain, that that infection can be treated or will be looked at um, and sort of taken into account in this. And so typically there's a medical doctor on that team who is able to do these tests and to do a really careful assessment of what is happening. And then typically there will be a referral to um, a mental health care provider um, who does know about sexuality and pain. And what we do in our therapy is we take a very, um, active pain management approach. We roll in uh, aspects of sexuality and relationship therapy into that. Uh, we, 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 there's lots of different skills that we, that we teach, but we are, you know, that we work with the client on um, that deals with, you know, sort of lowering catastrophization, looking at patterns in the pain to, to identify triggers that can be controlled in certain ways. Um, we can help with, you know, the mood issues, right, that, that come up. And then the pelvic floor physiotherapist usually will see that client at around the same time as the psychologist, um, if finances and resources allow. Um, and, you know, we'll work in a very, like, educational way about sort of how their body is responding to the pain. Because, you know, a, a lot of us have been getting vaccines these days, right? And you know that you might be a little bit sore in your shoulder. And your body, what it does is it kind of tries to protect your shoulder from pain because it's super sensitive, right? And so your muscles actually get like actually subconsciously just get tighter and you guard, you guard that area. You don't want to be jostled because that's going to hurt. Um, you don't want your kids like slapping you on your shoulder or giving you a little punch on the shoulder, right? And you're automatically just going to be guarding. The same thing happens in the pelvic floor uh, when there is pain there. The pelvic floor will protect itself from the pain. Um, you know, but the problem is that the muscles get tense, but the pain remains. And in fact, the more tense the muscles are, the less oxygen they're getting and the more pain you have. So it also like it's a it doesn't necessarily work in the long term. So the pelvic floor physical therapists are able to work in a very hands-on way with the client in terms of biofeedback, in terms of pelvic floor um, exercises, in terms of relaxation, in terms of contraction, in terms of more control. And then, you know, all the team together uh, will have some, you know, like even if a person just sees a pelvic health pelvic health, pelvic floor physical therapist, what will happen is that they will get better. They just see a psychologist. In all likelihood, they will get better to the same degree. But we always try to hit all of those points because when we're dealing with chronic pain, we're dealing with a vicious cycle that involves so many different systems of a person's body, their psychology, and you know their environment and their relationships in terms of their social interactions and their roles, right? So what we try to do is try to sort of at the same time as much as is possible kind of get the psychology work done get the pelvic floor muscles worked on and get the medical care sort of dealt with at, at around the same time so that we try to maximize success for our patient 
Um, and so we, you know, it's just important to have a really good team that you can refer to, um, you know, that, that um, you know, is able to kind of help the patient in those domains. But sometimes, I may even do an assessment of somebody and I'm like, you know, I actually think that the pelvic floor here is a, playing a much larger role um, and that we can absolutely do a few check-ins, you and I, and we can work on a couple of skills, but perhaps you don't need me as much as like another patient would. So we try to also individualize care, especially because it is expensive, right? To spend money on a pelvic floor physical therapist you know, crack out the insurance for medical consults, you know, crack out insurance uh, or pay out of pocket for psychology. And so sometimes, you know, we just have to be very practical. And uh, sometimes I see people who are not at all even close to red flagging. We've caught them early in terms of their mood, in terms of their fallout, in terms of their sexuality. And I'll say, you know what? You know, you have an open, like, you know, we will see you at any point, but at this point in time, pelvic floor physical therapy is going to help you more. And if you need a few sessions of psychology to help you with that transition, we will do that and get you ready. It'll be very specific in terms of getting you ready for what pelvic floor physical therapy will look like for you, getting some coping skills, getting your communication up to par so you could sort of understand what's going on, have a good relationship with that therapist. Um, and then, we, you know, you can come back anytime, but you don't actually need us right now. But if things start sort of falling apart, come back. Because um, we, we do have to also maximize, um, you know, and sort of work within limits that the person themselves might have, right? Um, so we try to be flexible within this kind of model. And of course, being in, being in Canada, the medical health stuff is taken care of by provincial health care, um, you know, but but there may be additional charges for very specific treatments that they may be accessing and they may not even be accessing these treatments in Canada. They may be going to the US for some of this. So we do have to be cognizant of those limitations. Yeah, it really speaks to sort of how inextricably linked mental health and physical health are. Yes, and you know, some people are like, hey, but I have this pain in my vulva. Why am I seeing a psychologist? Is it all in my head? Um, and so we explain what we do in terms of pain being both, you know, sort of a subjective psychological internal experience, in addition to, you know, sort of these physio having massive physiological underpinnings, and how our brain is a tool that we could actually hone to sort of modulate and change and alter the pain signals coming up from the body, right? So we talk a lot about that gate control theory of pain. Um, and, you know, sometimes I do have to work really hard for people to have buy-in into the whole psychology piece of this, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, it, I'll never force somebody, uh, but we do, you know, we do go over like that, that they have a tool in their heads that is going to be paramount to dealing and managing with their pain. And that through psychology, we can unlink strategy. Like we could, we could sort of, sort of get those strategies, um, you know, sort of at the forefront so that they are actually in control of the pain as opposed to the pain being in control of them. And, you know, so many people come in and, and all they talk about is their pain in their vulva, you know, and, and I say, you know, you are a person with pain in your vulva. And I understand that this is taking up a lot of space in your world right now. And I completely understand that. And hopefully by the end of therapy, you will be a person, you know, with a pain condition as opposed to the pain condition yourself, right? And so we will work on other aspects of you um, and empower you to actually sort of take control of this pain as opposed to that pain being large larger than they are themselves. 
obviously <laughs> I can't imagine what it might be like, but uh, I, I understand this affects an awful lot of people. How many women does this affect? Well, so if we think about pain in sort of the genital and the pelvic areas, um, chronic pain in this area in people who are assigned female sex at birth, um, that can go up to about 28% of the population. However, if we're only talking about vulvodynia, um, there are studies that show that it could affect up to 16%, but really like, and these are all really great studies. These are population-based studies typically done in the US, um, but a more recent study came out with some more sort of methodological rigor and that showed 8%, which is still massively huge in terms of the, the millions of people that this will affect, right? And still, you know, still, people may not find, you know, people may feel that they're alone or may feel that this pain is normal. I've absolutely chatted with people who are like, oh yeah, you talk about this pain. Like, like, you know, like I have that, like, isn't that just to be expected? And I'm like, well, you know, how long have you had the pain? They're like, oh yeah, ever since I've been sexually active, like five years ago. And I'm like, you know, from time to time, everyone will have painful sexual experiences. It may be because you're super stressed. Maybe there's not a lot of lubrication. Uh, maybe the angles just aren't working so great. Maybe things are just getting a bit out of hand and, you know, angles are just not great. But for to have five years of pain in most of the times that you're engaging sexually, that is not actually something that, you know, something that is to be expected. So we need to, you know, and I'm like, not to pathologize anybody, but um, this does not seem like, you know, this, this does not seem like a pleasurable sexual experience to, you know, uh, to, to have to deal with for five years. So sometimes I'm like, you know, it's like from time to time, it's okay. But if it actually starts lasting longer and longer and you have, tons more experience with painful sexual activity than you do without, there may be a problem here. So you might actually want to get that checked out. Um, but of course, you always have to ask about distress. You know, you always have to ask about how they're feeling. And most of the time they're unhappy with it, but they've just accepted it. And I'm like, you know, it may have a name, it may have some treatments. And this is something that you might be interested in pursuing. And I'm, you know, I'm always here as a resource. So let me know. <laughs> um, I will find out if there is somebody, you know, sort of in your world, in your area that can help you out, right? You find that most women discover this, um, or most people who are assigned female at birth discover this when their sex lives first begin, or is this something that can develop over time after great pregnancies question. or after cha life changes? Really great question, Catherine. Um, so both. So some okay. people have this the minute of their sort of penetration de debut. And actually sometimes people will have this, um, they'll notice that, that inserting a tampon or a cup is extremely uncomfortable for them. Um, and so sometimes it even predates sexual activity. Um, so that's called primary vulvodynia. There's another kind called secondary, which is where everything is great up until something happens. Sometimes it's, a, it's an injury, sometimes it is childbirth, sometimes it is, you know, a really bad, like, you know, series of yeast infections or bladder infections that kind of propel somebody um, towards this. Um, and not all people will, will develop it, but certain people with those vulnerabilities are more likely to, right? And it kind of tips like, Something will kind of tip them over that threshold from, from not having it to having it. And we call that secondary. Um, and so um, 
yeah, they're both. <laughs> Sometimes people have it, it'll go and then it'll come back. And then we're like, oh, how do we, like, are they primary or are they secondary? <laughs> so there's all these like, you know, issues that we have to sort of accommodate and sort of try to find language around, right? Because not everybody fits these very strict categories of just primary and secondary. We always have that area uh, of gray in the middle, which, you know, we, um, which we also have to represent. It strikes me that it's almost as though, I mean, if this affects between eight and 28% of, of women, which is a massive number, uh, and we still don't know a whole, you know, we don't hear a whole lot about it, that it, it's almost as though you've normalized having pain in that area more so than you've normalized this condition. What's causing that? Why, why do we not know more? Well, the, you know, that is, that is a really great question and one that I think, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we've been trying to help, you know, sort of get words out and sort of train more people. We had like certain organizations like the International uh, Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. There are like actual workshops that people can sign up for every single fall, right? That deal with pain, that deal with sexuality. There, there's like tons of information at nva.org, um, you know, and so, but yeah, this sort of speaks to the issue that we're not like as a society and as healthcare providers, um, not very many people have the language or the competency, but also the fact that chronic pain is very, very difficult to deal with. It's very difficult to treat because it becomes a cycle as opposed to a single thing because the healthcare system is overwhelmed and it takes a long time to get a diagnosis because sometimes you have to spend months ruling out all of these other things and because of wait lists and because of barriers in terms of access, in terms of transportation, in terms of coverage, in terms of all of these different things. Um, it kind of sets people up, you know, um, in ways that then kind of prolongs um, sort of their experiences as a pain. And even when we do have a great diagnosis, it takes time and it takes creativity and it takes, you know, multiple attempts to effectively manage that pain. It's not like once you know exactly what it is, oh, here, here's the magic, magic pill, you know, here's the quick fix to this problem that's been plaguing you for 15 years. Um, it's simply because, you know, like pain is pain, chronic pain, um, is something that is just not well managed overall because it is everywhere, but nowhere at the same time, it affects everything, you know, and if you're only seeing medical healthcare providers, that's a great step, but you're not going to be dealing with the fallout in terms of this, right. In terms of all of the aspects of your quality of life that have have changed, you know, all of the roles that have changed, um, all of the activities that have changed from your day to day. Um, and so part of it is rolled up into this whole mystery of chronic pain um, and the challenges inherent in sort of assessing and diagnosing uh, pain. But, um, you know, and, and part of this is also rolled up with the fact it affects sexuality. And a lot of people are just simply dismissed. Oh, it's normal. Oh, you're not relaxed enough. Oh, you know. And it's, um, it's just difficult um, to be able to kind of get those prevalence rates or, you know, any kind of rates kind of down because these are long-term conditions. Um, having said that, people do go through treatment once they're properly diagnosed and once they're on sort of the right path. And there are successes, absolutely. Perhaps the pain will not be still a 10 on 10. Perhaps it'll still be maybe still a two 
but that is a success because we also have to change. We have to help people change their expectations. We may not be able to cure the pain, but we may be able to reduce it enough so that it is no longer a primary identity of them. And it's no longer kind of controlling their day to day um, in the extent that, you know, they are, um, you know, sort of struggling with it and that they are able to, when the pain does come on, it's relatively mild. They're able to manage that and still experience pleasure or still not be as bothered by it, right? And so there are so many factors that go into those numbers um, and so many, I think, avenues to, to sort of tack into, but it really does exist at a very difficult intersecting, you know, sort of world, right? Chronic pain, oh, that's tricky sexuality, oh, that's even trickier. Um, and it's not to say that people, you know, people with penises actually do have, you know, sort of chronic pain conditions as well. You know, there's, uh, there's like scrotal pain, there's penile pain, there's pain upon ejaculation, there's all sorts of things that can happen. But I suppose that's time, like time for a different interview of some kind, but it does, it certainly does exist as well. Um, and we're still talking about sort of similar issues sort of within that role of more of the urological pain. Um, but yeah, there's, there's just a lot rolled into there. Um, and people taking very binary views kind of of the causes and things like that. So it's difficult, you know, if you look at it very biomedically, right, you know, you're only giving a little bit of attention, uh, you kind of have to look at it a little bit more biopsychosocially, right, take that larger kind of perspective. I googled vulvodynia, and the second result is a heavy metal band from South Africa. Oh my gosh. <laughs> My computer did not offer me that result. <laughs> Maybe I look up more heavy metal, I guess. Than, than, you yeah. know, uh, but they are the most successful heavy metal band to come out of South Africa. And they looked up and I, I tried to figure out why they came up with this name. And it, they were looking through a gynecology textbook. They read the definition. They said, that sounds brutal. And we're going for the most brutal sound we can from South Africa. Therefore, this makes perfect sense. Um. <laughs> I hope they give out pamphlets at their concerts because the metal crowd is so deeply caring, right? Like the personalities yes. in that in that group of music fandom, it would be phenomenal to just be receiving, you know, education about my vagina from the heavy metal community. I, I feel like a band of six men from South Africa are the ones to <laughs> spread the word. Uh, you know, that that is certainly I'm, I'm hoping that people look beyond like, look, who like the band look beyond yeah. as to why this name was changed and raise awareness that way. Maybe we need more more bands and TV shows called Valvadinia. <laughs> <laughs> I, I expect it's easier than renaming the condition Metallica. <laughs> so what can we do in the last minute that we have here? Uh, what's a hashtag that we can use to spread awareness? Uh, can we just hashtag Volvodynia or are people going to be directed to South African heavy metal? <laughs> you can hashtag Vol National Volvodynia Association, Volvodynia. You can hashtag Sex Lab because we produce a lot of information on Volvodynia and we, we get things out there. Hashtag Bodies Podcast, hashtag Tight Lipped. Um, you know, hashtag International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, like all of those would be uh, amazing to get out there and to spread the word about what this condition is.
Thank you so much, Dr. Caroline Pukal, for talking to us about your work and spreading the word about vulvodynia. The website for the National Vulvodynia Association has been included in the show notes. Today's show was co-hosted by Catherine McLaren and edited and produced by me, Eric Bowman. I would love to close this show playing an excerpt from the song Banquet of Enigmatic Horrors Part 2, Agony, by the South African heavy metal band Vulvodynia. Or, since we're approaching the Christmas season, their classic Slashing Through the Snow. Unfortunately, this show does not have the budget to license music such as this, so you will have to do your own YouTube search. Our theme music remains Avenues by David Taylor. David Taylor.